If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I, I have to confess to you that I, I told you a, an untruth last week, though it was not intentional. I told you last week that it was the last in our series on imagining the kingdom, and lo and behold, you get here this week, and there it is again. But I was gently um, encouraged by Reggie. I mean, I'm not supposed to mention names, so uh, just ignore that I said Reggie Williams um, (laughs) at the end of the service last week, that I should consider taking this next section on prayer. And um, I, uh, being the obedient pastor that I am, uh, (laughs) we are here. Uh, No, I knew immediately he was right, so uh, here we are. Ephesians chapter 6 uh, and verse, uh, verses 18 through 20, really, um, all but the greetings at the end of the, uh, of the book, um, and probably um, some of the more significant verses for the purpose of our series indeed. So uh, if you would read with me in Ephesians six eighteen through 20, I'll be reading from the New International uh, Version of the Bible, and uh, then we'll pray after we read the text. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak words, whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, if we could get the ushers to, to rouse the um, uh, disobedient Ryan and others from the, the foyer out into the audience. <laughs> I, yeah, did I say his name? I, I, yeah, just slipped. It slipped. I, uh, no, how these things happen. Um, anyway, <laughs> what's that? It must be. Okay, so uh, let's pray. Are we, we did, didn't we? <laughs> uh, there are hundreds of books on prayer, probably thousands, but we'll just you know keep from maybe exaggerating. It's certainly hundreds of books on prayer. Uh, a myriad more could be written, to be sure. And given the variety of ways to pray or kinds of prayers in Scripture, there's uh, not one answer to the question, what is prayer or how do I pray? Uh, I've heard various attempts at defining prayer, and many of them are really good, but they don't say the same thing, but that's for a good reason. Uh, Or how do I pray? Well, there's not exactly one way to pray. Certainly, Scripture gives us many options and ways to pray. If I'm talking uh, about the Lord's Prayer, I might say that prayer conforms my heart's desires to the very things that I should desire, and it helps me to ask for them. So the Lord's Prayer is truly formative. It shapes me, shapes me and us as a people into what we should be crying out for. If I'm talking about some of the Psalms, I might say that prayer is a bold declaration of my trust in God and faith in His rule over the earth. Other Psalms might lead me to describe prayer as Uh, bringing my complaints to God about how He is managing the universe. Uh, So they might seem quite opposite at times. Some prayers can easily be described as loving my enemies, Father, forgive them, or 
In the case of Stephen, do not hold this sin against them. Other prayers cry out to God that your enemy's children might be dashed against the ground. By the way, those are rarely used in congregational prayer. Um, Though I'm, I'm not sure that we shouldn't occasionally use them so we can learn how to use them and why they're there. I think ignoring them doesn't actually help people understand them in general. Um, and if we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we might say that prayer is about submitting ourselves to following God's will, and that's certainly true. But if we walk with Him to the cross, we might say that prayer is for times of questioning why God is acting as He is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thinking about prayer is a little bit like thinking about animals. To define what an animal is, or to say how they are different from plants or rocks, that won't tell us much about, say, elephants versus ants, cougars versus turtles or jellyfish. There's just a lot that could be said. You could never stop writing books about animals, and still you'd have something to write about as you keep going. And I think much the same prayer is that way. So I hope people keep writing good books on prayer, but more importantly, I hope people keep praying, or at least start praying if they are not. Uh, a lifetime of prayer won't exhaust the riches available for the church that prays. There are, as our text says, all kinds of prayers and requests. My goal this morning, since we have but a limited time together, is to explore what Paul says here in Ephesians about prayer specifically. This particular text, falling where it does, raises a few questions. One, is, is prayer just another one of the pieces of armor or weapons in the list? It follows the sword of the Spirit. Is it just another weapon? And if so, why is it neither given a metaphorical piece of armor nor connected uh, with any of Isaiah's messianic pieces of armor? Uh, but maybe it's another one. I, I, I think it might be more distinct but related to. Is, is prayer... How we put on the pieces of armor. I would say yes and no, but I'm not sure it was Paul's point either way. Uh, Closer to the point, I I would say this. Anyone attempting to not fight against flesh and blood and to love in truth and justice and peace, using only words as a sword, and those, not our own words, those of the gospel... Anyone attempting to do that will necessarily have to pray in order to not fail when temptations come and assault them. That, I think, gets closer to Paul's point. That if we are attempting to not fight against flesh and blood, but to walk out in love, in truth, in justice, in peace, not entangling with with rhetoric that's hateful, that we will necessarily have to pray that we would not fail uh, when temptation assaults us. And temptation will assault us, to be sure. What did Jesus do just before his arrest in order that he might do God's will rather than save his own skin? He prayed. Amen? He prayed. And he encouraged the disciples to pray, specifically Peter, James, and John, more specifically taking them aside. Pray that you do not fall in temptation or fail as the case may be and and they well they failed to pray therefore they failed to resist temptation but he did pray and he resisted temptation successfully so we're going to explore our text under four headings Uh, yes four points today not three but don't worry they're shorter points that way it works out 
Um, but the first is praying with a sanctified imagination. Second is praying in the Spirit. The third, praying for the saints. And the fourth, praying to reveal the secret. So praying with a sanctified imagination, praying in the Spirit, praying for the saints, praying to reveal the secret. And of course, you have a handout inside your bulletin that will help you walk through this with me. So let's begin under that first heading, praying with a sanctified imagination. And, and, and if, if we want to understand what Paul is saying in, in chapter 6 about prayer, I think we have to back up and look at what he says about prayer throughout the letter. But most particularly, I think we have to look at the one that sits right in the middle of the letter, because I think it has a lot to do with what it does mean to pray in the Spirit, at least what Paul means by it in his letter to the Ephesians. And so there in chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes this. He says, For this reason I, Paul, kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. This phrase, the Lord's holy people, we'll see it again in our text, we've seen it. To grasp, to, as we talked about when we were in that text, that that, uh, verb, to make our own the love of Christ in its width and length and height and depth, And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The thing I want to draw our attention to from that prayer specifically today is, Paul describes prayer as all that we ask or imagine. Paul anticipates that we are bringing to the Lord requests and that we're bringing to Him what we're imagining He wants us to do. We're praying through these things. And indeed, He's going to do more than what we can ask or imagine, but that's part of the process of getting there. I can tell you from Scripture and personal experience that if we are going to have a sanctified imagination, a kingdom imagination, prayer is that place where it will be sparked, formed, and shaped. Prayer is that place where it will be sparked, where it will be formed and shaped. I'm not diminishing the role of God's Word uh, by saying uh, that prayer is where that's going to happen. Because as Henry Frost, the North... Um, first North American director of the China Inland Mission said, he said this, he said, there's an inseparable union between the Spirit, the Word, and prayer. Inseparable union. The Word on paper, even the Word then considered in our minds, must be enlivened by the Spirit and must then marinate in our souls until it flavors our imagination. I think that that marination occurs Mostly in prayer, as we contemplate those words prayerfully. The Word of God by the Spirit of God in prayer must flavor not only our individual imaginations, but our congregational imagination. We have a congregational imagination. You may or may not realize that, but we do have one. We, we have this imagination of how we are to live life together. 
Now, we might all imagine it the same or all differently or some variation thereof. It's important that we think the same things about those things, that we get our imaginations aligned so that we're living in unity. But the reality is, you could be here and imagine that we should be going in this direction, and most of us are imagining we're going in this direction, and you'd be scratching your head, what in the world are they doing? Well, it has to do with how we imagine life should look like as a church. Humans live according to what we imagine will bring about the greatest happiness. But that's a flawed, that, that, that idea, what we think will bring about the greatest happiness, is flawed by our rejection of God's good rule. We must allow the Holy Spirit to inspire our human imagination, even our social imagination, our agreed-upon imagination, that thing that we have where we imagine life together that I was just talking about. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to transform our agreed-upon imagination, for it ultimately dictates how we will actually live together. This is at the core of what it means to not live by the law, but by the Spirit. Living by the law is to live without imagination, to merely do what it says. The problem is it doesn't cover every situation. You'd have to keep writing and rewriting and adding and writing and, and changing and adjusting because situations change. You know, I don't know about you, I'm glad we don't have to keep killing Canaanites. You know, <laughs> like, wow, don't have to wake up this morning and think about killing Canaanites. I'm not under the law. I have to allow my imagination to be shaped by God's commands to understand how we're to live today. Um, the Word gives us everything we need, but the Spirit hovers over our hearts with that Word and opens up our minds, our imaginations, if you will, to see how to live in those situations. The promises that we have in the Old Covenant regarding the New Covenant speak to this interaction between God's Word, our own hearts, our inner self, and the Spirit's work. We see, just I'll give you a few examples, we could go on, but Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So, laws going into our minds being written in our hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from, your heart of, uh, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Joel 2, 28. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. There's some imagination that's getting stirred right there. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, we had the Lord's Supper this morning. Those both show us that God wants to stimulate our imagination, both individually but also corporately. We gather around a common table. We're joined together at that common table. We eat from one loaf. This is a dinner table. It's a family table. You're part of that family. And it helps to bring our minds around that reality. In baptism, we, we see and feel our old person being buried, especially if the water's cold, we feel it. But we do. We feel our old person being buried and being risen out of the tomb, so to speak. Out of the waters of chaos into a new creation. But praying in the Spirit... Praying with the Holy Spirit's uh, 
uh, in us, it, it can be like a simulator of, of, praying, of prayer. You know, you're, you're familiar with simulators, at least vaguely, uh, in people learning how to drive a car or fly a plane. Um, it's a technique also used in, in education, especially higher education, called simulation. In simulation, the student is put into an imagined situation, and they must work through that imagined situation. And the simulation uh, exercise, those simulations exercise critical thinking and evaluative thinking. They encourage students to contemplate a scenario and how they ought to walk through that scenario. In prayer, with the Holy Spirit's guiding, we can walk through imagined situations, relationships, care for others, and sharing our faith, imagining what it looks like to stand for truth, to act justly, to walk humbly in the ways of peace. We can imagine how the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, might bring life to certain circumstances. And as we prayerfully consider that, we're, we're working through a simulation, as it were. We're considering that situation so that when we face real situations, we're actually equipped to do it. The situations won't be identical any more than you know, my, my son-in-law's a pilot, one of my son-in-laws, I've got three, but one of them's a pilot. Well, they learn to fly on simulators, and they have all sorts of circumstances, and he recently got a job and moved from the military to commercial airlines, and so he's back in simulators at first when he, when he got there and was doing all sorts of things, all sorts of storms, you know, and they might crash planes, all sorts of, but ultimately, when he gets in a real plane, he doesn't face the exact circumstances ever. But he can handle the exact circumstances, or the circumstances that he faces because of what he did face before and learned in walking through it. And that's how uh, a simulator works or simulations themselves work. And we, we can engage those in praying and asking the Spirit to open our hearts to understand how we might obey God's Word. Doing so better equips us, prepares us for the evil day, the day when evil comes knocking at our door. Instead of a list of laws for every new circumstance that we have, we have the commands of Christ. And as we prayerfully seek how to walk them out, the Spirit writes in our heart our imagination. And we contemplate the implications of the Word, what we are called to in the specifics of life. I ran across this interesting quote from Albert Einstein. He said, Imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. It is, strictly speaking, a real factor in scientific research. Now, Einstein was by no means demoting the importance of knowledge. He was a very knowledgeable man, and he thought knowledge was very important. He wasn't demoting the importance of knowledge. Rather, he was elevating the importance of imagination in order to, uh, that knowledge might make a real difference. We have to take our knowledge and then imagine what could be because of that knowledge. We take the Word of God. It doesn't get demoted, but then by the Spirit hovering over our hearts, writing in our, our hearts and minds, we imagine how that looks in real life, what, what it could look like for us to be a peaceable community, what it could look like for us to resolve conflicts, what it could look like, and we can walk down the list of each of those things. How do, what does it look when a poor family enters in and we help bring uh, truth and justice to them and, and, and help where it's needed in a way that helps and doesn't harm? What does that look like? How do we invite people into our community in a loving way? 
What does it look like for the walls of hostility between people groups to be broken down? Amen? Well, we must know the Word, but it can't stop there. We must reach its goal in our lives. The Word has an intended purpose when it comes, and it will bear that fruit. And we want it to reach that goal in our lives, and that takes Spirit-empowered imagination. Second heading, praying in the Spirit. And I've already bled over into this, but that's okay. It's my sermon. I can do that if I want to. <clears throat> in the very first part of, of Verse 18 in chapter 6, Paul says, Praying in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. What does Paul mean by praying in the Spirit? There's some debate about what it is to pray in the Spirit, but my goal is to approach it based on what the rest of Ephesians says about the Spirit. Now, we could go other places, and they're relevant to the point. I don't think anything's more relevant than what's said in the letter to the Ephesians Uh, about the Holy Spirit. So what does he say? Well, in chapter 1, Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. You were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, when you believed in Christ, it's there's a story in Ezekiel where Uh, A certain group of people are marked off so that they wouldn't be destroyed and uh, given judgment that was coming. They were sealed, it says. Well, that's the language used here, and that's actually the imagery that Paul is drawing on, is that you have been sealed by what? By the Spirit's presence in your life. That's what marks us as belonging to Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is present among us, so we pray in that presence of the Spirit. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul says, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. There's that phrase again. We'll talk about it later more. And His incomparably great power for us who believe. So the Spirit gives us wisdom and makes known to us God's ways that we may know Him better, how He thinks about things. See, to know God better is to know His heart, to understand how He would view something. We run into a situation, we want to know, hey God, how do you see this situation? Rest assured, it is not our first and most natural response to see it the way God sees it. But we want to see it the way God sees it. And we have to allow Him to open our eyes to that so we should be praying in the Spirit because the Spirit is the one who's going to give us eyes to see that. Praying in the Spirit is how we will be given spiritual wisdom and understanding concerning how to stand for truth, righteousness, peace, and to exercise faith to entrust ourselves to God. In other words, that whole thing about the armor that we talked about last week. In Ephesians 2... Verse 2, Paul talks about sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, that's a different spirit, but you get an idea that we've always been led about by a spirit in how to live. There's that spirit and there's the Holy Spirit. 
Once we were led about by that Spirit as sons of disobedience or children of rage. Now we are filled with the Spirit who enlightens our eyes so that we might see how to walk. And then in that same chapter 2, verse 18, we read, For through Him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So you have Jesus, Father, Spirit right there in that verse. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit, verse 21. In Him, Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. To pray in the Spirit, then, could refer to praying as a people built and joined together to be the holy people in the holy place. More on that in a bit. According to chapter 3, the mystery of the gospel that unites Jews and Gentiles together as the people of God was made known to the apostles and prophets, how? By the Holy Spirit. Which is how it then ultimately came to us. So to live in the truth of that unity revealed could be what it means to be in the Spirit. Certainly a piece of it. Chapter 3, verse 16. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. I, I hope you're beginning to realize that like when Paul says praying in the Spirit, it wasn't as if, oh gee, I better mention the Holy Spirit. He's been talking about the Holy Spirit throughout this entire letter. And so it's a culmination of things. Um, I pray that out of His glorious riches He would strengthen you with power by His Spirit in your inner being. So praying in the Spirit then is to pray in the one who strengthens us, in answer to that prayer, to love one another. Context of that prayer in chapter 3. Chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. So to be in the Spirit is to be one people. And then in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So, to be in the Spirit means that we are not grieving the Spirit with gossip and slander, but are building others up. It means we have gotten rid of hatred and rage. In chapter 5, finally, I'll just, we'll end with this one. Um, they exhort that in our gatherings, Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that describes what it looks like to be in the Spirit as a congregation. Singing, making melody in our hearts, singing to one another, speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, songs of the Spirit. Music in our hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks to the Father for everything. That is truly to be in the Spirit. And I think praying in the Spirit includes some aspect of everything I just went through. Some aspect of that. And probably more. We are to be praying with the sanctified imagination. We are to be praying in the Spirit. And we are to be praying for all the saints. For all the sanctified people, if you will. And there in verse 18, the second part again. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So, pray in the Spirit. Keep on praying for all the Lord's people. That phrase, the Lord's people, 
it, it captures the meaning well. Literally, we might say the holy people. Holy to whom? Holy to the Lord. Okay? Set apart for God. Set apart for Him. That's what holy means. Older translations say the saints, which simply means holy people. We could also say sanctified people because that's what sanctified means. It means to make holy. So holy people, saints, sanctified people, the Lord's people, which is the general idea of it, all capture it just fine. It means we're set, a set-apart people for the Lord. It's a similar meaning to chosen. Um, you know, He's chosen you. He's set you apart for something. He's got a task for you, if you will. Um, but notice this. We are a holy people. Pray for all the holy people, the saints, the holy ones. But they're not persons. It's a group of people. It's interesting that the word for holy people, saints, it's a masculine form of a word, and holy place, sanctuary, neuter form of the same word, their forms are actually identical. In other words, context is the only thing that tells you whether it's masculine or neuter. Um, Masculine then therefore refers to people. The other refers to the sanctuary throughout the Old Testament, almost always the sanctuary, the, the holy place, if you will. Now, given that we are being built together to become a dwelling place of God by His Spirit in chapter 2, I think the double entendre is intended. We are the holy people in the holy place, or even more to the point, we are the holy people who are becoming the holy dwelling place of God by His Spirit. We're the holy people who are becoming the holy dwelling place of God by His Spirit. You see, this, this space that we're in right now, lights and you know, shadows, <laughs> and, and whatever, chairs that are either comfortable to you or not, whatever this is. Some people refer to this as a sanctuary, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not the word police. But actually, this isn't the sanctuary. When you leave, it's not like you walk in here and God is here. You know, I need to go down to the church so I can pray like God's down there. No, we could take it all out and put up volleyball nets. The ceiling's a little low, but we could play some volleyball. It wouldn't matter, Okay. The sanctuary leaves when you leave because you are the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. So the holy people are being built into the holy place. They, they, they essentially become one and the same, like the two words that actually look identical. We are to pray for the holy people who are becoming the holy place. We're to pray for one another, to be sure. Paul gives us a good example in each of his letters of what that might look like. Well, except for Galatians, they didn't get a prayer. But anyway, <laughs> don't do like them. <laughs> but uh, We're not teaching that, so I'm not going there. But Paul gives us a, a good example of what this prayer for the saints would look like. Each of his letters is filled with prayer. You want to learn how to pray for one another? That's a great place to start learning how to pray for one another. And the fact that he prays for the holy people, the saints, in every place, even where he isn't at the moment, I'm always praying for you, I'm always praying for you, I'm always praying for you, is instructive for us. We should pray for each other, but also for God's people throughout the world, especially for those who are laboring to advance the mission and those who are being persecuted. Think about how we will grow as a community if we are praying for one another. In love, in peace, we'll grow in love, we'll grow in peace, we'll grow in patience toward each other. 
I mean, it's hard to pray for you and not to be patient with you at the same time. Now, I can be, hey, I'm good at being impatient. But if I'm not praying for you, that's going to be natural. But if I'm praying for you, it's a whole lot easier to be patient with you. We're going to talk about patience in the weeks coming up, but right now, just note that point. Grow in love for others. We might even imagine how we can love them better as we're praying for them. Grow in peace, not hostility. Um, I mean, a community group or an Aspen group, they can help put flesh on that where you're meeting with a small group of people and you get to know them. And, and that flesh on them helps you know how to pray for them. And by the way, the saints isn't limited to your buddies or coffee shop friends. I mean, pray for them, but expand that to brothers and sisters you're less naturally to, likely to, to relate to. Because that shows the power of God. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray for one another. Our Father, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us, not deliver us. Notice that they're all plural pronouns. It teaches us to pray for one another. We can also use the Psalms to pray together, uh, to pray for other people in, in our congregation that maybe their experience is different than our own. You ever read Psalms and think, wow, that's not the one for me today? Well, you're probably right, but it may well be the one that somebody you need to pray for needs today, and it will help you pray for them and lift them before the Lord. All right, the book of nature. You know, we've got the book of Revelation, that's our Bible. But we've got the book of nature, which also tells us a lot about God. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Well, the book of nature can teach us something about the importance of prayer. You ever heard of pheromones? I think I'm pronouncing it right, but Lord only knows. And what's that? Yeah, I am. Okay, good. Um, a, few, a couple of months ago, I said something in German, you know, some German word, and I, I, I butchered it. And, and um, somebody was kind enough to text me and inform me of its proper pronunciation, so I might get it right in the future. Well, anyway, pheromones um, are, are lightweight chemicals that easily rise into the air uh, and that stimulate, even control, the behavior of others in, of the same species. Now, uh, I read about these in this book you've heard me mention before, The uh, Immense World, How Animals' Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. It's just a scientific book. It's fascinating. But, but pheromones, I would suggest to you, are a lot like prayer. Ants, for instance, use pheromones to summon mobs of workers that can rapidly overwhelm prey or to raise fast-spreading alarms, to crush the head of an ant, for instance, and within seconds, nearly, uh, nearby colony mates will sense the, the aerosolized, the, the, the pheromones that just go right into the air and charge into battle. And by the way, if... if Pheromones are chemicals that rise into the air, and the Bible already compares prayer to incense that rises. I think I'm pretty close in making the connection between them. Um, and then you've got slightly heavier pheromones, so they rise more slowly. They're used to mark trails. Workers lay these down when they find food, leading other colony mates to um, that same place, place to eat. As more workers arrive, the trail is strengthened. When the food runs out, the trail decays. Leafcutter ants, get this, leafcutter ants, I don't know what a leafcutter ant is other than that they exist because it says they do, but leafcutter ants are so sensitive to their trail pheromone that a milligram, a milligram of 
pheromone, these ones that they use to mark their trail, is enough to lay a path around the planet three times over. That's how much that, that how strong that is to them. Finally, the heaviest pheromones barely rise in the air, but they're found on the surface of the ants' bodies. They, they function as identity badges. Ants use them to discern their own species from other kinds of ants, nest mates from other colonies, queens from workers. Pheromones hold such sway over ants that they determine whether they work together or attack one another, care for one another or not, care for others or not. And ants antennae are used to smell. I mean, I, I always thought their antennae were for listening to the ball game, but apparently not. They're not for listening to the ball game. They actually smell with those little antennae. That's how they detect the, the pheromones. And, and so they, the, some researchers did an experiment. Now, they, they, they could have tried to eliminate all the pheromones, but that would have been a lot harder work. So they simply uh, tinkered with the genetics that allowed them to smell the pheromones. So it had the same effect as eliminating the, the pheromones. And what was the result? Well, the mutant ants behaved in entirely unant-like ways. Unant-like ways. Uh, right from the beginning, there was something wrong with those ants, one of the researchers uh, on the research team said. It was super easy to spot. Get this. They wouldn't follow pheromone trails. They ignored barriers whose intense smells would ward off normal ants. They ignored the grubs that they're normally duty-bound to care for. They, they ignored their colonies altogether and went uh, uh, walk about on their own for days at a time. If they accidentally found themselves within a colony, their presence was actually disruptive and not helpful. Sometimes they released alarm pheromones without provocation, sending their nestmates into panic unnecessarily. And, and the researcher said this, they can't tell there are other ants there. They just can't sense them at all. It's hard not to feel sorry for them. Because why? Because ants without pheromones are ants without a colony, and ants without a colony are barely ants at all. Pheromones and ants are like prayers among the saints. These ants illustrate well a church that isn't a praying church. Prayer is that place where spiritual pheromones are released. Chemicals that rise, if you will, into the air and disseminate into the environment. When a church is praying, it functions together in unity and the bond of peace. When we are not praying, we live without a colony, without a people. Almost as if we weren't God's people at all. Speaking of ants, I have a spider making its way across the front of my <laughs> pulpit. I said, What's that movement up there? He's a fast little guy. Yeah. So, yeah, probably a colony of spiders somewhere. But anyway, <laughs> when we aren't praying, we ignore barriers. We fail to care for one another. We walk about on our own for days. When we do show up, we're often disruptive and cause unnecessary panic. All of that sounds familiar, doesn't it, what those ants do? Ants without pheromones are ants without a colony, and ants without a colony are barely ants at all. And that applies to the church in prayer. Believers in a prayerless colony are like believers without a community. And believers without that community, that colony, are barely believers at all. God has called us to live as the new humans, a people who live in God's image, His representatives um, in the earth of His kingdom. For that to happen, we must be praying for one another. We must be a praying community without prayer you won't see anything new about us 
at all. Prayer is absolutely essential for growing gospel culture. So, praying with a sanctified imagination, praying in the Spirit, praying for all the saints, and praying to reveal the secret. And this is a very short point, but... Verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given, to, given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The church is being asked to pray that words would be given to Paul so that he would fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. And that was his role in this. And what was that mystery? Well, he tells us in chapter 3 what that mystery of the gospel is, beginning in verse 4. We read it earlier. I'll read it again. Then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, two people that were very hostile to each other have been made one, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That The mystery is the unity of humanity under one head, Jesus Christ. The mystery required the cross, which put to death our hostility, thereby breaking down the walls of hostility. The cross, by which Christ made peace between us and God, and between us and others. In other words, Paul wants prayer that he might go into the hostile environments and fearlessly declare the gospel of peace and reconciliation made possible by the king who took the throne by laying down his life. That gospel he wants to proclaim, and he needs fearlessness to do it because he's going to be in hostile environments doing it. It takes those who speak words like Paul had and others have to communicate this gospel, but it also takes a church that provides a hermeneutic for the gospel. What's a hermeneutic? A hermeneutic is, is a, a system of interpretation. Well, the church, people ought to be able to look at the church and then be able to understand the gospel. It helps them understand what we're talking about when they can look at our lives and see us living it out. That's a hermeneutic. We, the church, need to be a hermeneutic of the gospel. We need to live in such a way, fearlessly, because it will take fearlessness to live in peace in a world that is hostile. Some people are called to preach it, but we're all called to live it. And Paul's asking for fearlessness in preaching it, but we need, we're going to need the same fearlessness in living it. It takes fearlessness to turn the other cheek. You know, I remember I was, I was 5, 13 years old, give or take, and it's the first time I was going to public school and riding the bus. And, and I'm riding the bus home. I usually rode my bike, but I'm riding the bus home. And there's this kid who was a bully, thought he was tough and whatever, on the bus. And for whatever reason, he decided he wanted to punch on me or something, you know. So he, he just gets me in the aisle. And, of course, you, you do it publicly. So, you, you know, you kind of throw out the dare and you have to stand up. And, you know, and he's like, let's fight. Let's fight. And, 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 and I just stood there, thinking about what Jesus said, about not, you know, returning evil for evil. So I just stood there with my hands down at my side, and he starts to throw, and he's like, put your hands up! And he keeps, and he's waiting for me to put my hands up to defend myself. And I just didn't see the point. And he finally just walked away. <laughs> He didn't know what to do with it. Now, sometimes they're not going to walk away. They're going to know what to do, and they're going to sock you. It takes fearlessness. 
And that's just a simple little thing. I wish I was that fearless all the time. We need fearless gospel of peace proclaimers, and we need a church that fearlessly has their feet wrapped to walk in the ways of gospel peace. And to do that, we must pray to that end and allow the Spirit to enliven our imaginations that we might have the Spirit's wisdom to know the will of God, that we might please Him in every way. Oh, may we be a people who pray, both gathered and scattered, but a people. We're still a people when we're not gathered. We are the church gathered and we are the church scattered, but we're always the church. Okay. We need, we need to have a sanctified imagination, praying in the Spirit, praying for all the saints, for one another and um, obviously the whole uh, church, and who pray that the gospel mystery of peace might fearlessly be, be made known. What are we to do? What do we do on Monday? What do we do on Tuesday? Well, we pray in the Spirit on all occasions. We pray with a sanctified imagination. We pray for the saints, for one another. We pray to reveal the secret of the gospel uh, with gospel preaching and gospel living. In other words, we pray. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray then. Heavenly Father, help us to imagine this life together and this life in the world that makes known the gospel of peace. Lord, help us to know it, help us to live it, help us to be fearless in our living it and in our proclaiming it. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.